All right, um, we are ready. I have a line here. I think we're ready for Matthew thirteen twenty four to thirty. Or did we do that last week? We did ten to twenty three last week. Okay, so twenty four, verse twenty four. We didn't even get through Matthew thirteen. So Matthew thirteen, verse twenty four. Tara, would you like to read? Uh, why don't you read verses? Why don't you read that whole uh, parable, verses twenty-four to thirty? Okay. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, "Sir, don't you sow good seed in your field?" Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because when you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So what does this tell us about salvation and about God? He waits until people are fully mature to really like judge their hearts. Okay, so so in order to see what we really are inside, we have we have to come to the place where we're fully fully mature, and that's mature mm-hmm. evil, mature good. Yeah, he's not going to prematurely uproot wheat, mm-hmm. the weeds, and and why not uproot the weeds? He knows the hearts. In the process, it could hurt the wheat. It could hurt the wheat, correct. What does that say about how God runs the universe? Does he run it on his knowledge? Or does he run it on objective evidence? Objective. So so what he does is allow things to come out into full fruition before he acts, so that everybody can see and know and understand. He does not act on his own reconnaissance, but always with others in mind. This is going to sound a little bit like Thursday morning wake prayer. Uh, But uh, God is always in community with others, and he does not act without carrying them along with him. I thought it was interesting as you were reading that Jesus says an enemy has done this. And we always apply that directly spiritually. The enemy is out to sow weeds, he sows tares among God's people. But what about in actual literal life? I mean, what Jesus portrays here is is a very literal story that happened every day in Palestine, not, not every day, but every season in Palestine. Did Is Satan responsible for our weeds? Weeds are, are, are they not malformations of, of good, honest-to-goodness plants that are beautiful? Some things we think of as weeds are not really. It's just we don't, we've lost the knowledge for their use. Yeah. It's like you want the mm-hmm. one thing, so anything that's not what you intended is therefore a weed. Is a weed. Okay. 
But have you noticed that that our weeds grow more prolifically than what we plant? Sure. I have a, a I don't know, maybe a side question, thought. There are the, the plants that the farmers plant mm-hmm. and have for a long time. But is there something about the analogy of those that are doing the genetically altered, genetically modified things, sowing the evil, it might sound kind of, um, it's not against any person, but it's the fact that they're trying to take control of everything, just as our enemy would try to take control of something. Genetically modified foods, it depends on what you genetically modify, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and what you use to modify. Uh, putting harmful things into plants is not a good idea. And for some of us, things that would normally not be harmful are harmful. Another thing that happens with genetically modified food is, for example, what happened to tomatoes in California. They genetically modified them in order to keep them firm mm-hmm. longer and so that they could commercially sell them more prolifically. Sounds like a good plan, but in the process, they bled out the favor, flavor. And, the, and so consequently, you go to the market and you buy uh, normal tomatoes, not uh, organically grown, uh, bring them home, and they taste blah, very blah. Cardboard. And I, I think they've been working on trying to remedy that <laughs> because I notice they, they do improve slowly. But um, they still, it still reminds me of a green tomato. Consequently, I've been buying organically grown tomatoes because I don't feel that I get the nutrition out of the ones that the flavor has been bled out of. And I guess part of, part of my point was that, you know, what we get as genetically modified, I mean, it looks good. Sometimes it looks great because there's... Some, it looks even better, yes. You know, and... Sometimes organic food looks horrible. Oh, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> because... But isn't that what our enemy does? He makes everything look mm-hmm. so good. And, and then you eat it, and, yeah, and it yeah. can be so bad for you. My journalism textbook, there was a little section in it this week. There's a case study on genetically modified foods. And before I read it, I didn't, I never really had full knowledge of genetically modified foods. I was like, okay, they're making it easier to grow. It's it's good stuff. But then it was saying that it can contribute to a lot of the food allergies that people have been having. Like um, gluten intolerance can be caused in some people like more strongly because the wheat grown has all these different genetically modified components to it that makes it harmful to those people. I had no idea that that could be a cause of stuff. It kind of scares me. Like, oh, maybe I will go organic now. <laughs> yeah, and and I've understood that they have used dairy. So for people who have dairy intolerance, yeah. that's a problem. They have used um, animal. meat, animal flesh, uh, to genetically modify food. So it's no longer vegetarian when you get it. <laughs> even swine stuff. Yeah, and it, even if you do eat meat and you choose not to eat the swine. certain kinds. Yeah. Well, and who knows what parts of the of the body they're actually using. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, glad we didn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did, but I'm fine. <laughs> I grew up in a home that talked these things very freely. And isn't that what the enemy? 
whole his whole preoccupation is with attempting to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it's GMOs or whether it's weed, uh, weeds, uh, even something really good. How many? I, how many of you like uh, Japanese maples? Mm-hmm. You know what that is? <laughs> um, they're, they're really pretty. Right up to that corner of that window is a Japanese okay. maple. It looks nice. Yeah. You know, in California, there are weed. Interesting. A weed. And I know that personally mm-hmm. because I have a lovely Japanese maple in my yard, and every sp- every spring, up come Japanese maple trees all oh. over my yard. I mow them down. <laughs> so, yes, it is a you weed. You have your own nursery because yeah. they, they charge horrendous prices for them in nurseries. For a weed. If only people knew. Well, I have neighbors that come and actually pull up my Japanese maple and plant them in their yard, uh-huh. and now they have beautiful Japanese maples. <laughs> I've, I've done this with the, about three different na- neighbors, mm-hmm. or maybe four. Just All you have to do is pull it out by the roots, stick it in vitamin B1 uh, water for overnight, and then plant it. Plunk it in the ground. Yeah. And water it, and it'll grow. They're great. Wonderful shade trees, but they're weeds. <laughs> so this, this weed thing can be a very deceptive thing, can it? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, apparently, the weeds Jesus was talking about were a kind that looked like wheat. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that because how many times have we stepped in a, in a patch of barley, you know, wild barley that is growing up out of nowhere? Or uh, even wild wheat. So it's it's difficult to tell the difference between a wheat and a weed and, and a weed. Now, in in some translations, of course, the weeds are terrors. In the summer, I taught a class for pastors in Central California, and I raised the question: What do you do? It was an ethics class. What do you do in your in a church where you have a member that is very dominating and domineering, and he takes tries to take control of the entire church, and he's he or she is very difficult uh, to relate to, get along with, unless you do everything they decree. Uh, what do you do with them? I'm asking pastors this, and it was obvious from the response that. Everybody was aware of these kind of people, that they're in every church. And I thought, I was, I thought we had kind of talked it out, and I was ready to go on to new material. And one of the conference officers who was there, who had actually uh, gotten the meeting going, raised his hand and he said, Would you please tell us what to do with these kind of people? And I wished I'd had an answer for him. It's not easy. But I pointed out that a church is kind of like a garden. And in gardening, there's two ways you can do gardening. You can tackle all the weeds and all the pests and all the things that damage a garden. Um, And you can spray insecticide and pesticide. And you can just fight, fight, fight and still have a sickly garden because you haven't treated the soil. You haven't made 
you haven't worked for the plants. You've worked against the weeds, against the enemy, but not for the plants. And this is actually a parable that a physician who is a Lyme specialist uses in his book. Uh, this is Dr. Kenneth B. Singleton in his book, uh, The Lyme Disease Solution, uh, in which he likens a person's body to the garden. And he says, what you need to do, instead of worrying so much about poisoning the weeds, you need to worry about getting the health of the body. So you can't just, I mean, you should fight Lyme, but you can't just fight Lyme Mm -hmm. disease. You have to grow a healthy body. So what you do is systemics, as in vitamins. What you do is nurturing and, prote- and, and giving sunlight and, and giving water and all those things. And yes, you're watering the weeds when you do that. But you're also strengthening the root systems of the, the plant, the good plants. And so I suggest that the pastors need to do that with the church, that they need to work around the problem with the members so that the members can get the strength they need to be resilient and to not allow that domination to take place. Because it will curb it. Yeah. Eventually. It will. It takes longer, but it's more satisfactory in the end, in the results. One, one member of the class used this from another pastor he had heard where uh, terrors became terrorists. Use that as a pun. Um, I thought it was. I thought that was an interesting metaphor. Uh, changing weeds into terrorists, <laughs> but it is sometimes unfortunately true. So, to me, this is a great metaphor for the gospel. Great parable of what needs to happen, and 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 so you treat the plant. And in the process of treating the plant, you strengthen it so that it keeps the weeds out. If you have a lot of weeds, someone in the midst of of wheat, it's because you didn't treat the soil well and you didn't plant enough seed. All right, let's go to the next parable. Kim, would you please read verses 31 to 32? I have another parable. Put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now don't think of our mustard seed. Our mustard seed is very small compared to the ones that Jesus is talking about in Palestine. Uh, the one that Jesus is talking about is like a tree, a uh, small tree, uh, and it becomes shade for birds. Interesting. That's my understanding. Is the seed still as small? Because he's mentioned. I think so. I think it's a very small seed. Have you ever tried pulling out mustard? I've seen it along the road. It's very hard to pull out. Mm. It has a very long root, mm. and, and it, it really grips the soil. Mm-hmm. So what do we learn about salvation from this? About the kingdom? 
things can start small. Like your faith can be really small at the start, but it can mm-hmm. still grow and you can still be of use to other people. Can actually be the strongest mm-hmm. faith in the end. Yeah, Jesus actually likens our faith to the show mustard seed, doesn't he, elsewhere? Okay, let's move on to the next parable. Professor? Yes. Um, also about the root system. A lot of root systems are, well, depending on, you know, some of them can be really shallow but spread far. But if this is a root system that's really that really grips the earth, isn't that what our, isn't that what faith is relative to, you know, other, either other situations or other religions or other, you know, Christianity for this, at least when I was studying other religions in my class, this makes the difference. Christianity makes the difference because it, it has to do with... Well, we, are not, we do not teach salvation by works. No. Whereas other, all other religions have that as, as one of their components. Mm-hmm. We teach salvation through, by grace through faith in a relationship. In, in a relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. It, That's what I found was the difference. And, and that relationship, when fostered, can grow to very deep depths. I don't know. If that's uh, you know, I, I'm thinking now that the, maybe the reason vent, vintners plant so much mustard between mm-hmm. their grapevines is to hold the soil, hold, and it actually probably holds the yeah. moisture. I don't think mustard itself requires a lot of moisture, but it holds it mm-hmm. uh, into the soil so that the grapes can flourish more fully. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong on that, but I'm it thinking. Makes sense. I'm thinking that might be having having pulled a few mustard out, because <laughs> you can't live in England without mustard. Uh, okay, the parable of the yeast. He told them another parable, verse thirty-three. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast worked its way through all the dough. What is Jesus saying here? That. Whatever you partake of, whatever you bring into your thoughts and your heart, permeates quickly, like leaven, like yeast, and it goes throughout. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Um, You become that. Okay. The, The growability of the kingdom to permeate, you know, um, I think what Jesus is describing here is something that maybe a farmer would be closer to than we are. And that is, and, and, a, and, a, and a woman making bread. I mean, a lot of us don't make bread anymore. <laughs> we just buy it anymore. Yeah. Um, I grew up making bread. That's when I wasn't gluten-free. And... Uh, from the time I was, I think, 11, uh, I started making bread for the family. And I remember making sure that yeast was in warm water and be able to be able to start multiplying. And once it started multiplying, add it to the bread. And then you knead that bread. And you put it in a warm place. You want it in a warm place because the yeast will rise better. 
And then the, the resulting loaf is light and fluffy uh, if you have yeast. Now, what seems to me Jesus is illustrating is the influence of the gospel. And that is a gentle process. Just as you don't go around pulling out weeds in wheat to protect the wheat. And just as it's a very small seed you plant, and you can't expect much from a small seed, can you? And just as yeast just quietly multiplies and spreads throughout the loaf, so the gospel is that way. It's gentle, it's unobtrusive, it's small, it's least, but it's powerful. And its power is in its unobtrusiveness, its smallness, and its gentleness. Uh, And I I think that's one of the things that Jesus is is suggesting. Now, Jesus goes on to interpret the parables. We've already interpreted them uh, pretty much the way he did. I want to draw your attention, though, to 41 and 42 and 43. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that cause people to fall away and all people who sin. He will throw them into a burning furnace. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. What is that depicting? What is the furnace? For me. No, I believe this is the second coming. What is the price? Right. It's their gnashing of teeth when they find out they're, they've been mistaken. Is, is that the condition that they're in uh, when he removes his protection and, and they're at their own mercy? Can you imagine being on a planet where there's no divine protection anymore? Can't call on God for help and you're surrounded by evil people. That's a furnace. And, and the, the emotional response indicates this is not a literal fire. This is an emotional experience. And verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. That's part of the reason that I was said it was, it was not only the second coming, but prior to, because um, Ellen White talks about when they come upon and the wicked come upon the righteous to enforce the death decree, they shine. Yeah. What is that shining from? Holy Spirit. It is is the response of a union with Christ that is so clear and real that it's, it's almost like you shine from within out. So this is the experience of the righteous and the experience of the wicked when they're separated from Christ. Okay, let's move on to, um, why don't you read the next three parables, Tara, 44, verse 44 to 49. Okay. The kingdom of heaven is like a, tre- a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like Jesus now flips models or flips flips the model upside down and he goes to a different sphere. The first set of parables have to do with the effects of the gospel on the heart and why we're not to go around pulling up weeds in the, in the church. The second parable, second set of parables, is the response of a person to the gospel. What we do, what we're willing to do when we hear the good news. And so we're willing to give everything for it. It's basically, I think, what the treasure in the fine pearls is about. And, and you notice that this is, I'm going to introduce you to a new term. This is, these parables are in chiastic structure. I guess you've been introduced to this by someone. Yeah. In high school, one of my religion teachers kind of taught it about revelation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, this, this whole, these uh, are in chiastic structures because remember Jesus begins with a judgment scene. And now he's ending with a judgment scene. Uh, so Jesus asked, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. And then he said, therefore, every legal expert, that's every scribe, who has been trained as a disciple for the kingdom of heaven, is like the head of a household who brings old and new things out of the treasure chest. So I have a question for you. Looking back over all these parables that we've read this morning, how many of them come from the sphere of law? They're all real-world examples. They're all real-world real examples, and they all involve nature to some degree, mm-hmm. some lesser than others. So the question I have is, how many of these metaphors that Jesus uses are from divine constructs, creation slash nature, family, Sabbath, and how many of them are from humanly invented constructs, economics, kingship, and law? Except for the mention of having to sell all you have for the pearl that you want. It's all just the divine constructs. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Uh, you could put economics in there a little bit. You know, you wanting to sell all you have for, mm-hmm. for the pearl and for the treasure in the field. And so you, there's a bit of economics in there, but the treasure is found in the field, and, and the pearl is, uh, is a totally economic model mm-hmm. because... He's in, it's a merchant who's in search of fine pearls. Uh, so Jesus uses both the human and the divine. But in this particular set, he seems to emphasize more the divine. And nothing in his parables is really artificial. The, the nature of the kingdom is internal. It's response. It is how it permeates. It's the effects. It's all about natural cause and effect. Right. Let's go to Matthew 15, 10 to 20. Actually, I think we need to start with verse 1. 
Why don't you read verses 1 to 9, Kim? Okay. Then came, Jesus, came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your, trans, by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father and to his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. In honor and honor not the, his father or his mother, shall he be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy to you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrines uh, the doctrines, the commandments of men. Okay, Tara, why don't you read verses 10 to 19. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of the mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Go ahead and read 20, okay. the first half of 21. Uh, these are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Okay, what's the main point Jesus is making here? heart has to be in the right place it doesn't matter especially what you eat or anything else like what you listen to what you take into your heart what you say is what really matters I was wondering I mean all of this is so neatly packaged that we can read from one to the other and it's beautifully constructed so that we can gather these points but when he was teaching did did they really remember from one to the other no, we have that we have that advantage over his hearers because that's, he he gave spot parables here and there. That's what I thought. and and it was a different group every time. And and so with with that, we have the benefit of like, oh, mm -hmm. it's what we are inside, mm -hmm. and, and it's what it's what comes out. Is yeah. a lot of things bombard us in this world. But it's what we do with that, how we respond to that. So what Jesus is trying to move them from is an external religion to an internal religion. Is it re religion? Because when, when I think of religion, I think of pomp, circumstance, you know, liturgy, all of that, versus a relationship of, I'm really here for you. 
Um, religion, anything external is religion. Anything internal is relationship. Okay. Um, I want to move back to verse 9. He's quoting Isaiah here. They worship me as, of me as empty since they teach instructions that are human rules. Uh, the Hebrew, this is the Septuagint version, I believe. But the Hebrew text actually says something along the lines of their worship of me is empty because they teach what they teach is by rote or they teach their instructions by rote so you you memorize the rules but you don't and you try to obey them but you don't understand them Jesus is really big on, on understanding. You may remember this from uh, two weeks ago when we talked about the parable of the sower. Jesus stresses understanding as the way he can heal us. Which means that the, the belief that many people propagate that we can't understand God in his ways, so stop asking questions or, or stop thinking is about the biggest lie that anybody could tell uh, because it is through understanding that he heals us. And understanding is that internal kind of relationship. When, when you have a close relationship with someone, isn't it because you understand them? So I can't resist raising the question about this. Are we saved from a legal problem? Or what is it that we're being saved from the reason this is so important to Jesus that, that we understand that true spirituality, true trust in God is internal. It is not external. If sin is a legal problem, then we're, we're then the, the solution should be a legal solution, should it not? And, and it, therefore it's external. It's an external solution. But Jesus constantly points us to an internal solution, which means the sin problem is not a legal problem. Okay, let's move to, we're making some progress today. We're a change. Let's move to Matthew 18. And uh, the verses I have down is 1 to 4. Actually, let's read, let's not skip over verses 5 to 9. Let's go ahead and read this whole passage. And I think, Kim, it's your turn. Um, and you said what verse? I'm going to read, read 1 to 4. Hopefully my phone will be back up by the time you finish reading this. I mean my Android. Um, and at the same time came the disciples, saying unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and set him on in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become a little, as a little child, ye will enter not into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, why don't you read 5 to 9, turn. Okay. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If, anything, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, 
cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter your life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes cause you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Okay, uh, Kim, why don't you read verses 10 to 13. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I, am say, I say unto you, that in heaven these ain't there heaven their angels do always behold the face of my father which is in heaven for the son of man is come to save that which was lost how think ye if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone from gone astray and also if it be so that he find it verily i say unto you he rejoices more of that sheep than the ninety and nine, which were, went not astray. In verse fourteen, even if, even so, it is is it not the will of your Father, in, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish? My version has in the same way, my Father who is in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones. So, one of the things we need to keep in mind. as a background to this story is that children in the ancient Near East and in Palestine in Jesus' day were commodities. They were economic commodities. You had children for economic reasons, not because you loved and valued them for themselves. Uh, Because a child could grow up and, and work for the family and bring in greater income. And a child, a son particularly, was valued, and it was an heir. And the Roman Empire, I think this was even stronger, uh, because female infants were often exposed. They were uh, left out in public uh, to die or to be adopted by someone coming by. And, And whoever adopted them would turn them into a slave and would raise them for slavery. Uh, so, so this is the background against which Jesus is talking. And he called a little child, and it, it would be interesting. Let me do a check. Uh, chapter 18, verse 2. I'm going to check to see the, if I can find the gender of... If I'm not mistaken... It's masculine. So he may have called a little male child. I was kind of hoping it would be neuter or, 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 fe- or feminine, but uh, Matthew has it as a male child. But Jesus could have just as easily called a, f- a female child, which would be the least. In the, in the Roman construct, it would be the least uh, in the kingdom. So this, this really highlights what Jesus is saying. He's taking the thing they value the least, the person they value the least, setting that person and saying, this is, this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, if you don't become like this child, you can't, you can't go there. Would, would that have any... It just kind of smacks of the prodigal son and how that is a, a picture of the great controversy in who we are. 
Yeah. What I what strikes me with this in my version anyway, it's very clear. I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around, that is you don't repent and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not picturing something he won't allow. I won't allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying you just definitely won't enter. You 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 don't have if you're thinking about who's greatest and you want to be the greatest, you can't enter the kingdom. It's impossible for you to enter the kingdom. And then whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. The least in the great in the kingdom, as we've done it to the least, we've done it unto him. And then he pronounces basically a curse on anyone who causes a child to stumble. And you think of, of that society and the way they operated and how easily they caused children to stumble. But this isn't just physically a child. This is a, a child in a sense of a person who comes to something without any prior understanding or bias. They're like, you know how a child is about learning. They honestly don't know, and they want to know. And so when you answer their questions, they have nothing to bring to the table that would shortchange them from really knowing the truth. So this is anybody in that situation. So woe to us if we misrepresent God to that person. Okay, our time is up. And uh, we'll have to start in the middle of the chapter again next time. Let's have prayer. Father, we thank you for the nature of your kingdom, the nature of the gospel. That it is unobtrusive. That it is not controlling, but but effusive and influencing and gentle and gracious. We thank you that this is the way you are, that the way you run your universe, you do not control, you do not shortchange us from the truth, but you wait until the harvest to bring everything to light. We thank you that you are this kind of person. We pray that we may exemplify you in the way we treat others. In Jesus' name, amen.